Hello, everyone. Welcome to this second Geopolitical Economy Hour. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. Thanks to all our viewers for making our inaugural show such a success. As uh, many of you know, in this collaboration with Ben Norton's Geopolitical Economy Report, Michael and I will present every two weeks a discussion of the major developments and trends that are so radically and rapidly reshaping the world order. Issues that involve not just politics and economics, but rather, as Michael and I like to put it, political economy, and as my 2013 uh, book had it, geopolitical economy. Today's discussion is focused on inflation, on its much debated return after many, many decades. And we thought we would structure our discussion around certain key questions. What is inflation? What is the textbook definition? How has it been understood in the past? What causes inflation? What are the supply and demand side factors? Given that capitalism is considered such a powerful productive machine, why are the most powerful capitalist countries suffering from inflation today? What does it say about their productive system? What is, in fact, causing the current inflation? What's the Federal Reserve in the United States, particularly the most powerful central bank in the world, particularly, is doing about it? And what's wrong with what the Federal Reserve and many other central banks are doing? So, Michael, why don't you just start with your thoughts on the first question? Well, the of inflation. And uh, I think most people are expecting us to talk about consumer price inflation uh, because that's what the media talks about. Uh, but there, I'm going to give you my punchline first because that's how we're going to end up this discussion. Uh, what has really been inflated uh, since 2008 uh, has not been consumer prices, but asset prices, real estate prices, stocks and bond prices, things that the 1% hold. Wealth has been inflated uh, much more than goods and services, uh, and uh, especially uh, for real estate. This debt has been inflated not by government uh, debt, not by government deficits, but by the Federal Reserve's creating $9 trillion of subsidy to the banks to support real estate prices and hence uh, the value of bank-held mortgages and stock and bond prices. Uh, this is not discussed or even recognized uh, in the mainstream economic models. Uh, instead, we have a kind of mythology by right-wing anti-labor financial lobbyists. So uh, this mythology is about uh, what I think most of the listeners are expecting us to discuss, uh, the inflation of rising consumer prices. Uh, and that's the only kind of uh, inflation that the Federal Reserve talks about. Uh, and this is all blamed on increasing uh, the money supply, uh, as if somehow money is creating the inflation. Uh, they're not talking about uh, inflation as a result of monopoly pricing. Uh, they're not talking about inflation as a result of uh, the uh, um, uh, NATO's uh, sanctions against Russia. Uh, they're just talking about money. And somehow, uh, if we can stop money supply, uh, if we can stop the government spending so much money on Social Security and uh, uh, Medicare and other social spending, but not military spending, then everything will be over. So we're actually going to be talking uh, about the relationship 
between the inflation of housing and uh, asset prices on the one hand, and how this actually affects the inflation of consumer prices uh, and how debt and uh, inflation all go together. So thanks, Michael. I think I'm also going to follow suit and just give you give people a sort of a, a little preview of the where we are going to end up. I think yeah. Michael's absolutely right. There are actually two distinct inflations to be talked about. One is asset price, price inflation and the other, which is real. It's happening right now. People are see, feeling it in their pocketbooks and in their in their bank accounts and so on, which is consumer price inflation. But nevertheless, there is a there are some very interesting relationships between between them. And one a, a part of the relationship is that, of course, uh, as Michael said, the Federal Reserve constantly talks about the, the consumer price inflation. But in reality, its actions are geared towards asset price inflation, not towards dampening it. On the contrary, towards keeping it going. And this is going to be from my point of view, from various things that I've written, written, including an article called Vectors of Inflation that I published in the New Left Review um, blog called Sidecar uh, a, couple of, a few months ago. In this, I argue that precisely because the Federal Reserve actually wants to keep asset price inflation going, because that is the sort of financial house of cards on which the wealth of so many extremely wealthy people big uh, financial corporations, high net worth individuals depends in order to preserve this wealth. The Federal Reserve is actually also not going to be able to tackle inflation in the only way it can using the sledgehammer of high interest rates. This might mean a little bit of good news for some of us, but nevertheless, it still means that the underlying problems are not being solved. So let me, with that return also having sort of You've seen where Michael and I want to take the conversation. Let me return to the uh, the question of what is inflation? What is the textbook definition? So generally speaking, uh, the textbook definition of inflation involves uh, essentially, you know, too much money chasing too few goods. There is a decrease in the purchasing power of money. There is a devaluation of money uh, and so on. And of course, the Federal Reserve and most people, as Michael already pointed out, believe that um, yeah, so the, the textbook definition of money is one in which money loses purchasing power, it is devalued, it, it happens due to money printing. And the conventional view, which Michael has pointed out the Federal Reserve generally tends to subscribe to, was expressed by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in a book they wrote back in 1963, in which they claimed that inflation is everywhere always a monetary phenomenon, which means it is caused by essentially the Federal Reserve and other central banks supplying too much money into the system. And this can only be quashed essentially by restricting the, uh, the money supply, by raising interest rates, by uh, employing other means such as, as we now know, so-called quantitative tightening in order to release uh, to to, uh, uh, to so in order to restrict the the supply of money and of course everybody remembers or not everybody but some people some people who are old enough will remember that back at the end of the 1970s and the early 1980s Paul Volcker imposed precisely such a shock 
on the uh, American economy, uh, essentially to quell inflation. So the textbook definition is this. But Michael, how would we criticize the textbook definition? Well, it, uh, it only looks at uh, money, as you just said from uh, the uh, Milton Friedman quote, uh, but it doesn't uh, look at uh, all the non-monetary causes of inflation. For instance, uh, we've seen uh, oil prices and food prices rise uh, simply as a result of the sanctions against Russia. Uh, we've seen the pharmaceutical price, uh, prices rising, uh, especially from Martin uh, uh, Shrekley, who uh, vastly increased other prices. Uh, all across the board in the United States, companies have been saying, we're raising the prices because we think there's going to be an inflation and uh, we're just trying to rise it uh, in, in, in advance. So now that uh, ever since the Democrats really uh, took power in the 1990s under Clinton, uh, they've stopped the anti-monopoly regulation. They've stopped the antitrust uh, laws from being enforced, and you have a great concentration of monopolies, and uh, they can raise prices uh, for whatever they want, as much as they want, uh, for agricultural goods. Uh, the distributors uh, have simply raised uh, the prices without paying the farmers and the dairy farmers uh, anymore. So uh, when you say that inflation is only a monetary phenomenon, what Milton Friedman is saying is don't look at uh, uh, the, uh, the power structure. Don't look at how markets are structured. Don't look at uh, monopolies. Don't look at how uh, the wealthy uh, corporations are inflating. Uh, look at something that we can blame on labor. Uh, and uh, the inflation that Milton Friedman talks about, and you just mentioned uh, uh, my old boss's boss, Paul Volcker, is wages. So when the Federal Reserve talks about inflation, they say it's really wages rising. Well, we know that raise, wages have not risen anywhere near as uh, fast as the cost of living. So that can't be the reason that wages are rising. But if you can uh, claim that inflation is only caused by labor making uh, too much money and, and hurting other workers as consumers, uh, then you have the Federal Reserve uh, uh, able to come in uh, and say, We've got to have a depression. We've got to have unemployment. We're going to raise interest rates because we want more unemployment to increase the reserve army of the unemployed so that wage earners will be so desperate for a job that they'll work for less. And if only they work for less, then uh, uh, prices will come down uh, as if somehow the companies are going to lower their prices just because they uh, can pay their labor uh, uh, less. Uh, the pretense is that it's all... So far, uh, it's, it's all labor's fault. No, and, and you know, uh, uh, Michael, I would actually just, I completely agree with you, and I would actually just go a little step further, basically by insisting that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And, you know, in that original work by Friedman and Schwartz, and later on in many other pronouncements, Milton Friedman has even said, it's not even about the unions. He's not saying that because he, you know, particularly cares about the unions. But the reason he's saying that is basically because people like him insist that the only way to deal with inflation is, as you said, is to cause a recession. So by restricting money supply sufficiently, and in fact, money supply has to be restricted to a point where uh, interest rates go above the rate of inflation. So, for example, that would have meant back in last uh, uh, June, for example, in the United States, where inflation was close to above 9%, in fact, that the rate of 
interest rates would have to go above that in order to dampen inflation. So the point is that by insisting on monetary authorities causing inflation, what you're doing is you're saying the only way of dealing with this is to cause a recession, to cause an unemployment which is sufficiently high that it will drive down prices of uh, drive down wages, that is to say the price of labor, and also therefore the price of everything as you simply quash demand to such an extent. And therefore you're essentially, you're saying that you restrict people's consumption. And by the way, at the present moment, yes, you know, it may be uh, uh, difficult to say that um, wages are causing inflation, although strike activity has been going up in the United States and in many other countries, they are only running to catch up with the extent to which workers' wages have gone down to such an extent. But nevertheless, what they are doing is they are pointing to the stimulus that the uh, U.S. Uh, government has given, uh, which they say has is now gone into the pockets of people and uh, is causing inflation, is basically pushing up demand. But in reality, if we look at the studies that have shown exactly where the stimulus went, again, most of the stimulus never even ended up in the pockets of people. And the little bit that did more or less immediately left those bank accounts to go to the bank accounts of the big financial institutions because ordinary people are so indebted that they were essentially deleveraging, they were reducing that debt. So, so anyway, that's that's an interesting uh, uh, initial take on the first question, which is you know how the textbook definition is such a misunderstanding of inflation. So maybe we can move towards you know how inflation is understood and also experienced historically. And maybe I should just start by. Uh, saying that uh, essentially, you know, historically, we've seen that inflation has typically been the result of major disruptions. Wars cause inflation, uh, various obviously economic crises have caused inflation. And yes, it's not entirely untrue that it's possible that an influx uh, or an uh, influx of money material as happened in the 16th and 17th and 18th, sorry, 15th, 16th and 17th centuries in Europe due to the discovery of gold in in the new world and gold and silver. So these, um, these, this influx of money did cause a rise in prices. But the fact of the matter is very interestingly, it was directly connected with the birth of capitalism. The rise in prices actually encouraged the economic activity that gave rise to capitalism in these centuries. Well, you mentioned uh, the inflow of money, uh, and uh, that is another area where uh, Milton Friedman went wrong. Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz had no concept of all of what money is. Uh, they actually put forth a great falsification that has been leading uh, to confuse people for the, uh, more than half a century, ever since I had to go through uh, school and actually read uh, the book. Money is, uh, most people think of it as an asset what you have in your pocket. But uh, all monetary assets have debt on the other side of the balance sheet. All money is debt. Uh, the currency in your pockets is actually technically a debt to you. Uh, most currency is $100 bills, uh, and they're shrink-wrapped, uh, sent in a, uh, airplanes to uh, pay uh, al-Qaeda, uh, to Ukraine, uh, to pay uh, Mr. Zelensky, uh, to pay kleptocrats. Uh, they're used by uh, drug dealers. They're put in the mattresses all over the world. They have nothing to do with American inflation. By, uh, by far, most money is bank credit, and bank credit is debt. 
Uh, and if you look at that, then uh, you have uh, a whole different perspective, not only on uh, inflation, but uh, how uh, uh, wealth is created and how uh, the economy is polarizing. And you have to look at the whole economy as an economic system, which you and I have been talking about uh, for years. Uh, and the purpose of uh, the mainstream media talking about inflation is to prevent you from looking at how the economy is working to prevent you from looking at how uh, corporations are rising prices, to prevent you from looking at monopolies and war. Uh, people talk about hyperinflation, uh, uh, and again and again, you will see in the New York Times and the Washington Post and even the, and the Wall Street Journal saying, well, if we uh, keep running budget deficits uh, to spend on uh, Social Security and uh, Medicare, we're going to end up like Zimbabwe uh, uh, or like uh, Germany in uh, the 1920s. Uh, well, as I've shown uh, in uh, my book, Super Imperialism and Killing the Hosts, uh, the, every hyperinflation in history has resulted from trying to pay foreign debt. Uh, it's by dumping, uh, dumping your uh, currency on the uh, foreign exchange market to pay debts denominated in another currency. Germany was uh, uh, saddled with a war debt far beyond its ability to pay, and uh, the Reichsbank uh, kept throwing, uh, uh, throwing uh, German marks onto the foreign exchange. The currency clapped. Uh, you had uh, the United States, uh, inflation of the 1970s, uh, caused by the balance of payments deficit for the war in uh, Vietnam and Southeast Asia, and uh, the almost 800 military bases the United States had. But uh, you, you're not going to have uh, any of the media saying, well, it's the war debts and the war spending uh, that's causing the inflation. It's just, uh, well, uh, look at what happened in the 1970s. Wages went up. That must be uh, the uh, what caused inflation. And uh, Paul Volcker, who you mentioned, w walked around with a uh, table, a chart in his pocket of construction industry wages. And he said, until we can bring down construction industry wages, uh, largely by uh, uh, the, uh, the poorest uh, uh, sector of the population, uh, then we're not going to fight inflation. He didn't say we've got to bring down housing prices or stock or bond prices. We've only got to bring down wages uh, and increase profits because the profits will all be used to spend on uh, uh, more investment and uh, that, that will save us all. So all of this is, is a fairy tale. Uh, Absolutely. The lack of understanding of what money is. Yeah. And, you know, uh, this is very interesting, Michael. You know, one thing that you uh, so I wanted to pick up on from what you said early on. Um, just now is that um, the Federal Reserve can print a lot of money. Federal Reserve has been printing money hand over fist, like like essentially throughout the this century, and particularly after the two thousand and eight financial crisis. So, if there was going to be inflation, how come it didn't happen earlier? For the simple reason, as you rightly point out, is that when the Federal Reserve prints money, it can go in one of two directions. It can either go into the financial system where it is holded, where it is used for speculation, precisely in order to drive up the asset prices that you are so emphasizing, Michael, totally correctly. Or it can go into the economy, leading to productive investment, um, etc. And that is what it has not been doing. The kind of, you know, basically every period of economic growth is actually connected with at least mild inflation.
because uh, essentially, and, and rising prices are actually a boost to the economy. You know, I remember reading many years ago, uh, Pierre Villar's History of Gold and Money, in which he points out that actually had it not been for the uh, uh, the effects of the inflation in the early centuries of the emergence of capitalism, capitalism would not have emerged. Because you see, left to itself, if capitalism functions as it's supposed to, which is to constantly bring down the prices of things, capitalism would suffer from a deflationary environment, which would be a curb on investment. So mild inflation is there's nothing wrong with it. And of course, uh, in the in the neoliberal period, uh, it's precisely uh, you know, the, if you people may remember in the 80s and 90s, our central banks were aiming for zero inflation, uh, which is essentially very deflationary. It's basically saying that we are not going to allow for any productive investment, any productive growth, etc., etc. So absolutely, if the if if the money is not going towards productive investment, then it's not going to cause consumer price inflation as it has. It had not been when you had. Uh, uh, all this money printing that went on throughout the 21st century in the United States. So this also brings us to another question. And I guess we have now sort of slipped into talking about the third question, which is what really causes inflation, both the demand and supply side and so on. And I want to talk about both consumer price inflation and asset price inflation. But I maybe want to open up with a certain thing because the Fed, certain point, because the Federal uh, Federal Reserve's policies and the policies of many other central banks that have sort of had drunk the neoliberal Kool-Aid, the monetarist Kool-Aid and so on. Essentially, it is to claim that they uh, uh, that that uh, the only way to deal with inflation is to have high uh, uh, interest rates. And this is essentially a class war. It's a class war uh, in at least two senses. At, at both ends of it, it's a class war. Because on the one hand, by causing high levels of unemployment, what you're doing is you're devaluing labor, which is the only thing we have to sell. Most, the vast majority of working people, all they have to sell is their labor. So uh, by causing a recession, by increasing interest rates, you are devaluing labor. On the other hand, by increasing interest rates, by keeping asset prices high, you are preserving the wealth of the wealthy. And this is not the least reason why these this century has seen such a great shift in, uh, 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 in, 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 in income from labor to capital and particularly to financial capital. And that is why we have seen inequality rise to such obscene levels. Well, the result is what has been called uh, the Hudson Paradox, uh, and I've described that in my book, Killing the Host. More money and credit is used to bid up asset prices for housing and retirement income, and that puts downward pressure on con consumer spending, because if you have to uh, spend more money on paying a mortgage on a house that's rising in price, if you have to spend more money on rent, if you have to spend money on monopolized uh, health care services, on uh, monopoly goods in general, then uh, you're going to have less and less income to spend on goods and services. And uh, again, what's deflated is uh, spending of 99% of the, well, certainly 90% of the population uh, on uh, goods and services because their spending is diverted to pay uh, for access to uh, assets 
and to monopolize goods and for uh, goods that are uh, subject to protectionism or, uh, uh, or warfare. So the irony is that asset price inflation uh, leads uh, to rising housing prices and consumer income uh, deflation. Uh, and you have to look at the economy as an economic system. Uh, not simply, uh, we're only looking at two variables, uh, uh, consumer prices and money. You have to look at uh, who owns the wealth, who owes much, uh, what to whom, uh, how much uh, debt is uh, diverting uh, money away from uh, consumer spending uh, to uh, the upper uh, asset holders, uh, the 1%, the 10% who own most of the stocks and bonds and real estate. Uh, and uh, who are now uh, buying up uh, private capital investment in uh, medical practices, in uh, uh, almost every kind of consumer goods, and uh, taking them private and sharply raising the prices. Uh, if you don't look at how the economy is structured uh, and how the ownership is changing and the relationship between ownership and uh, non-ownership and uh, consumption and labor, uh, you're going to miss all of the variables that are really necessary to explain how the economy works. And uh, most discussions of inflation are designed to avoid talking about uh, how the economy works. Precisely. Uh, and, and, how, and how it's structured. I mean, I think the Hudson paradox is absolutely fascinating. And on top of that, I would perhaps add a, shall we say, a decide corollary to the Hudson paradox. And that would be that in their own way, uh, in its own way, rather, asset price, price inflation actually adds to consumer inflation in the, in the simple, for the simple reason that when you have asset price inflation, some people, of course, are getting very rich and they, are, they can afford to pay wildly inflated prices for various goods and services and so on. So because they can easily pay, they end, end up uh, uh, driving the prices up further because they can pay. And so enough people are, are, are making money by selling at those prices. So in that sense, they can also keep inflation going. Now, this brings us, of course, to the discussion of what causes inflation. And perhaps, Michael, if I may just kick it off by, by just presenting a very simple scenario. The simple scenario is imagine that, yes, you know, uh, look, I mean, saying that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods is essentially reading the symptom like it's a bit like saying you have a fever but doctor why do i have a fever is it because i have an infection is it because i have some other illness more serious illness etc so you have to examine why too much money is uh, uh, facing chasing too few goods in any healthy capitalist economy or, uh, or any healthy market economy, you would expect that if there are prices are rising of certain goods or maybe many goods, there would be a supply response. Uh, energetic intrepid capitalists would invest precisely in those lines of production where there are rising prices. And once, of course, they start increasing the production of those goods, prices would normally come down. So in any decently organized capitalist economy in any reasonably productive capitalist economy this there should be a supply response and therefore if inflation does occur it would be temporary it would be in certain goods and services so why has there been general rises in consumer prices uh, over time what have been the causes so uh, i would say that certainly there can be rises in 
particularly in the prices of two sorts of commodities, which are quite special. And then, of course, there can be mismanagement of money. So, yes, there can be monetary oversupply. Yes, there can also be rising wages if unions are strong. And we hope that they would be uh, that they can, in fact, uh, 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 increase uh, uh, wages and, and that can add to the price of things. And it has happened historically at various points. I would definitely say that was an element in the 1970s when unions were indeed strong. And there is a third very key reason wh where you can uh, why you can have inflation, and that is commodity price inflation, both uh, the all, both sorts of primary commodities, the products of agriculture as well as the products of mining can have big lags in production so you can have a rising prices but it takes a long time before additional supply can come on the market in agriculture because of course you have to wait till the next season for the production of that commodity or in the case of mining because a lot of investment has to go into mining before these the new supplies can come on the market and so there are many other issues involved with these but these are some of the common reasons why you can have uh, inflation. But Michael, maybe perhaps you wanted to add something. Yes, you've been focusing so far and quite correctly on uh, physical uh, output, but uh, the main inflation has been on infrastructure services. Uh, education, getting a cost of education has gone up much more than other uh, things. Medical care, uh, what's caused this is the privatization of what used to be social infrastructure services. The whole dynamic of industrial capitalism a century ago was to uh, lower the cost of basic needs, of uh, retirement income, of health care, of education, because if you could provide these basic needs freely or at subsidized prices, then uh, you wouldn't have to pay uh, labor more, uh, more wages to, to, to buy a uh, high-priced education or high-priced uh, health care. You would make your industry more productive because you lower the cost of living by socializing uh, the cost of education, medicine, transportation, communications, uh, and look at what happened uh, in England after Margaret Thatcher. Privatizing council housing pushed uh, housing prices way up, tripling, doubling, 10 times uh, as high. Uh, same thing for medical care, way, way up. Uh, privatization uh, of uh, infrastructure has uh, been probably the single major cause of uh, price inflation squeezing the budgets uh, of the 99%. Uh, <laughs> and and Michael, I'd, I'd add something to that. You know, this is uh, you already mentioned this. And of course, a lot of left wing economists are pointing out people like Robert Reich and others quite correctly that an, it definitely a very large part or uh, a very large contribution has been made to the current inflation uh, precisely by these sorts of privatizations, which is not just privatization in a competitive market, but practically every one of these privatizations has been a form of privatization in which they have created private monopolies. And so the contribution of private monopolies to rising prices has definitely been very high. Well, these monopoly prices also have included a huge uh, amount of uh, debt service and uh, uh, consumer uh, of, uh, I'm sorry, they, they, the prices of uh, these monopolized uh, services have uh, increased not only because of higher debt service, but because of higher dividends, uh, higher managerial payments. None of this would occur 
uh, under uh, the previous uh, public uh, uh, sector services. So you have a transformation in the organization of industry as a result of privatization that builds uh, huge financial costs uh, to the banks and to uh, the financial sector uh, into the pricing of goods and services. So the whole character of uh, what the prices consist of is transformed and uh, expanded and inflated. So, Michael, what you're saying is really fascinating because on the one hand, of course, by diverting so much income towards these high-priced goods, on the one hand, they this should lead to obviously inflation in the prices of these goods and so on. But it should also, by depressing consumer demand elsewhere, it should actually have a depressive effect on the prices of other things. But we are seeing the prices of all of these things going up anyway, which brings us to the next question. You know, everywhere we look uh, in most of the literature, even in much of the so-called Marxist literature, we find a depiction of capitalism uh, where capitalism is sort of the best thing, thing since sliced bread as far as the productive system is concerned, that capitalism continuously expands the product, uh, production. It is the only system that is capable of doing so. In fact, indeed, Back in the 1950s or 60s, I think the Hungarian economist Janos Kornai had actually argued that um, that the capitalists that, that socialism can be understood as a supply constraint system, whereas capitalism should be understood as a demand constraint system, which implies that in capitalism there are no constraints on supply. But the fact of the matter is that we are today witnessing a pervasive rise in prices across the board, prices of all those monopoly services and, of course, the financial services that Michael rightly pointed out, uh, rising in rents to which Michael has also pointed, but also rises in the prices of ordinary commodities, not just food and fuel, which can conveniently be blamed on um, be blamed on uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, etc., but also other things. Core inflation is very high, which tends to be measure inflation net of volatile prices like food and fuel. So why is that? If capitalism is supposed to be so wonderfully productive, why are we experiencing this problem? Michael, what do you think? Well, there's obviously two kinds of capitalism. Uh, the textbooks like to talk about industrial capitalism, especially the industrial capitalism as it seemed to be evolving in the 19th century uh, into socialism. Uh, but what we've had instead is something very different, and that's uh, finance capitalism uh, that's uh, based on basically rentier income, uh, land rent, uh, monopoly rent, natural resource rent, uh, and financial uh, uh, debt charges. So uh, when you talk about demand, uh, the, uh, the textbooks think, well, uh, workers pay their uh, wages uh, on buying goods and services. But that's not what they do at all. That's not how it works. They, before they have any uh, uh, money to spend at all, they have to pay their taxes that are taken off and their medical care, that's taken off the top of their paycheck, and they're, got, they're given uh, after-tax income. Uh, Milton Friedman developed this uh, anti-labor uh, policy in, during World War II when he was working uh, for the War Department. But uh, also, before the uh, wage earner can spend the money on goods and services, as uh, the demand says, uh, he, the wage earner, uh, he or she, uh, has to pay rent uh, for the house, 
they have to pay medical care. They have to pay uh, the credit card debt. They have to pay the auto loan debt. They have to pay their education debt. So uh, the actual disposable personal income is not simply what they can spend after paying taxes, but what they can spend after paying taxes and rentier services. And that uh, increase in these various forms of economic rent has widened so much that it squeezes what's actually available out of the worker's paycheck to spend on goods and services. And if you don't look at this rentier overhead, uh, then you're not going to understand why finance capitalism today doesn't uh, produce the rosy results that uh, ad uh, advocates of industrial capitalism talked about. They're talking, uh, they're 100 years behind uh, uh, be behind the times. They're not looking at uh, the transformation into finance capitalism and how it's uh, transformed Indeed. the economy. And this exactly ties back into our inaugural conversation, Michael, because one of the things we emphasized in that conversation is that when neoliberalism was sort of the neoliberal policy paradigm was ushered in as the sort of the thing that was going to restore capitalism's mojo, restore its productive dynamism, it did nothing of the sort for the simple reason that uh, capitalism is no longer competitive. It's monopoly capitalism and monopoly firms are price makers. They are not price takers. So um, essentially, they don't have to react uh, uh, to rising prices by uh, uh, supplying more. They can simply react to it by keeping prices high, which is kind of what we are looking at right now. So uh, uh, neoliberalism did not resolve this issue. But on the contrary, it has vastly inflated financialization. So neoliberalism, rather than restoring capitalism's productive uh, 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 dynamism, has actually unleashed the, the, the storms of financialization, which bring us regular financial crises, which bring us all these other problems we're talking about, and which have also uh, gone into... Uh, weakening the productive economy. Michael, I know you want to say something. Yeah, so well, neoliberalism say. really is financialization. Neoliberalism exactly. is financial lobbying for a financier's view of the world. It's the Wall Street's view of the world. That's the central bank's view of the world. Uh, it's not the industrialist's view of the world, and it's certainly not the wage earner's view of the world. Uh, so uh, the question is, whose perspective are you going to use in looking at uh, how the economy works? Yeah, so, so if we may round up this part of the discussion, because we have a couple of really important further questions to discuss, I would say that what's causing the current inflation is a combination of things. Yes, of course, uh, the war, uh, the conflict over Ukraine, which, by the way, the United States is doing nothing to stop. And we will be discussing this at a later date as well. Uh, secondly, yes, uh, monopoly is uh, certainly contributing to it. Financialization is contributing to it. Um, all of these things are contributing to it. But there are two things that are definitely not contributing to it. Number one, the stimulus did not contribute to, to it because the overwhelming majority of the stimulus never ended up in the pockets of ordinary uh, Americans. And number two, yes, even though there may be a wave of uh, strike activity, which absolutely needs to happen, uh, which workers need uh, in order to, to, uh, to catch up with the loss of income, real wages that they've had for a long time. But this is not contributing to inflation. If anything, it is only mildly mitigating the effects of inflation on the lives of workers. So, but ultimately, I would say, 
that the reason why core inflation is high and is likely, in my humble opinion, to remain high, in particularly in the very neoliberal financialized capitalisms like the United States and the United Kingdom, is because of the productive debility, the productive problems of the under, underlying productive problems of the economy. Uh, this, I would say, is the main thing that is causing inflation. And as I've argued in my vectors of inflation, Unfortunately, because the Federal Reserve, while talking about employment levels and economic activity levels and so on, is actually really concerned about keeping asset inflation going, it is going to fail to deal with it. So that's that's how I want to sum up some of this aspect. So we can now shift, perhaps, Michael, to talking about what the Federal Reserve is doing. How are we to understand it and what's wrong with it? Well, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913 to take monetary policy out of the hands of government. Uh, the idea was uh, for uh, actions that the Treasury used to do, managing the economy, would be transferred to Wall Street and to other centers. The Treasury Secretary was not even allowed to be a uh, member of the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, J.P. Morgan uh, organized the bankers and said, we're going to uh, take the 12 Treasury districts and we're going to make them into Federal Reserve <laughs> districts. Uh, and it, uh, basically, we're going to shift economic planning away from Washington and put it in the hands of Wall Street in New York, uh, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and then San Francisco, uh, but we're not going to let the government do the planning. The problem is that got, people vote for politicians, and uh, you don't vote for who's going to uh, be on the Federal Reserve Board. We've got to take uh, planning away from democracy and put it where it belongs, in the hands of the 1%, uh, the bankers. And that was the purpose of central banks in every country. Central banks were the alternative to socialism. Central banks were to prevent industrial capitalism from developing into uh, uh, socialism, but to develop into a financialized capitalism that instead of being productive was a predatory. And uh, that explains why, if you look at what Janet Yellen uh, and other uh, anti-labor economists are saying, uh, she'll say, uh, our job is to prevent wages from keeping up with the cost of living. We, we have to keep wages down to keep uh, our uh, uh, businesses' profits high because corporations are the, our customers. Our customers are uh, people, um, uh, real estate people. Uh, our customers are people buying, a, buying houses. And if we can uh, raise the debt necessary to buy a house, then we've got an enormous amount of uh, economic rent that's ended up paying interest instead of being used as the tax base, which is what Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and uh, the first uh, line uh, of the Communist Manifesto uh, urged uh, to Absolutely. take land public utility. You know, Michael, all that reminds me of a really interesting strand of the story that you're telling. You know, you rightly reminded us that the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, that J.P. Morgan uh, insisted that even the Treasury Secretary cannot be a member of the Federal Reserve Board, etc. So, you know, particularly in the very era when uh, this financialization really got going, 
um, it was accompanied by the rise of a myth, the myth of independent central banks. The idea was that central banks were to be made independent, which means that there should be no political interference in the central banks. And the idea was that this would allow central banks to set monetary policy independently for the good of the economy, to keep employment high and inflation low, etc., etc. In reality, of course, central banks have behaved uh, in in a, in ways that have only benefited the financial sector, the financial sector which produces nothing, which makes profit without production. But nevertheless, they this is the uh, these are the sectors of the economy whose interests have been minded by the central banks, not the interests of the productive economy. Now, from this point of view, it's really very interesting that it is precisely in the era when labor was very powerful up to the 1970s. It was only in the late 70s that a the Federal Reserve was given a new mandate. Up until then, the Federal Reserve's mandate was only to keep inflation low. But with the strength of um, uh, of labor and the Democratic Party being in power and the Carter and so on, they passed legislation which added a new mandate for the Federal Reserve, which is that the Federal Reserve should also uh, organize monetary policy in such a way as to keep uh, keep employment levels up. Of course, no sooner had they passed this legislation than the Federal Reserve acted in precisely the opposite way. Rather than worrying about inflation levels, the Federal Reserve focused only on bringing down inflation. Paul Volcker was made the Federal Reserve chairman because he was known as a sound money man, um, a man who was willing to restrict money supply to such an extent that and allow in inflation uh, interest rates to go as high as they wanted in order to curb inflation and eventually uh, in yeah in order to curb inflation eventually as some of the older ones of you may remember or some of the rest of you may have read interest rates went to 18% double digits high teens uh, before they brought inflation down and they did ultimately the Federal Reserve didn't bring inflation down. The Federal Reserve simply imposed such a deep recession. Some people will remember the W-shaped recession of the early 1980s, imposed such a deep recession on the American economy and the rest of the world economy as well as to essentially bring prices down. So in that sense, even though employment was added as a mandate and today, the Federal Reserve uh, chair people, you know, whether it's Janet Yellen, Alan Greenspan, Jerome Powell, Ben Bernanke, they have all continued to use the uh, rhetoric of, oh, we are looking at employment levels. We are going to, um, uh, 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 we are going to calibrate our, our monetary policy to these things. In reality, they have only been concerned about uh, keeping. Uh, asset inflation going because as as you as i've said before and as michael says this is the these are the markets on which the uh, the assets of the really rich americans rely for their wealth well two comments radica first of all you said the financial sector is not productive what does it produce it produces debt debt is what it produces uh, that's uh, uh, what yields interest that's uh, it's its product is debt even though it's really an anti-product, that's what it produces. Uh, it, and the debt is a form of overhead. So the financial sector 
produces overhead, and the effect is to polarize the economy. Uh, secondly, you talk about the shift in the Federal Reserve uh, uh, purpose uh, towards uh, inflation, not towards full employment. Uh, it's actually much more subtle than that and much more sinister. Uh, the Federal, you'll uh, listen to Janet Yelton, uh, Yellen, and uh, she'll say, well, of course, the Federal Reserve is trying to increase uh, employment. How do we increase employment? Wages have to fall by 20%. We've got to pay those greedy workers less. Uh, and if we can pay them less, then there'll be more employment. So the solution to make more employment is to create unemployment. And if we can create enough unemployment, then workers will become so desperate to eat uh, that they will have to avoid homelessness by actually taking minimum wage jobs, which we are not going to raise in keeping with uh, inflation because inflation is what's squeezing the budgets uh, basically to uh, this whole economic system designed to transfer wealth from the goods and uh, service producing sector to the rentier uh, debt and uh, monopoly sector. That's the irony. They, they've twisted all of the meetings into an Orwellian double thing. Very interesting. So, so Michael, uh, what would you say, I mean, what is the Federal Reserve doing and what is right and wrong with it? Perhaps wrong with it. Right, I, I think there's very little well, that's right. What's wrong with it, with it is, is yes. that uh, it believes that uh, the way to uh, make an economy grow is to make it poorer. Uh, this is uh, the doctrine that the International Monetary Fund tells uh, all of its borrowers, Latin America, Africa, Asia, if you can only uh, prevent labor unionization, if you can only cut social spending, if you can lower wages, you'll be more competitive and you will grow. Uh, so yes, we will bail you out uh, of debt so that you can pay the bondholders in the United States uh, and other dollar bondholders and the foreigners who've uh, lent you money because we've uh, the World Bank has pushed you into uh, dependency on the uh, uh, the creditor nations. Uh, if you can own, uh, pay them by... Uh, by being poor. That's the financial philosophy. The financial philosophy in a nutshell is pay labor less, leave the economic surplus for the owners of uh, wealth, uh, the owners of money, and the most of all, the owners of the monopoly of creating credit, creating money. That's what makes uh, Western capitalism different from uh, the Chinese system, where it's the central bank of China that creates uh, uh, the credit, uh, not the uh, uh, the uh, commercial banks that end up turning all of this rent into uh, interest and uh, economic overhead uh, that is responsible for most of the price, uh, the cost increases. No, this is uh, very important. We should probably wrap up our discussion now because we're, we are getting close to an hour. But let me just uh, say a couple of things. So to add to what you're saying, uh, I will simply say that uh, the Federal Reserve, actually, uh, as I said earlier, it has been acting in the interests of the financial sector throughout the neoliberal period. So, and this period I would divide into two quite distinct parts. So we had the 1980s and 1990s where, you know, beginning with the Volcker shock, interest rates became very high. And then later on, they did come down a bit. 
but they remained at historically quite high levels during these decades. So basically, banks were making a lot of money simply by buying bonds and so on and, sit and, and earning a relatively high interest. Thereafter, particularly uh, after the 2000 uh, bursting of the dot-com bubble, we had the Federal Reserve changing course uh, and adopting a very uh, changing course, by the way, I should add, for a very interesting reason. They realized that the only thing that was keeping the dollar's value up and the uh, economy uh, uh, going uh, at, at even at a weak rate uh, was basically the house price bubble that had been brewing in the U.S. economy since the 1990s. So in order to keep it going, the Federal Reserve adopted a radically low monetary policy uh, a paradigm which allowed the inflation of those huge asset bubbles that we saw, which ultimately burst in 2008. So, and of course, even after that, the Federal Reserve kept up the easy money policy. So there are these two distinct periods, but in both cases, they are looking after in one way or the other, the interests of the financial sector. Now, at the present moment, therefore, when, when inflation really began to hit, the Federal Reserve basically, first of all, reacted to it. Jerome Powell first reacted to it by saying, oh, we don't have to worry about it. We are going to continue low monetary policy uh, because inflation is going to be transitory. Remember, I'm not endorsing the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. What I'm saying is they did not raise interest rates which is what they would have willingly done if they thought the threat of inflation was higher because they first of all dismissed it as transitory because they couldn't afford to accept that they would need to increase interest rates because increasing interest rates are big, will prick all these asset bubbles, beginning with the weakest asset bubbles. So first they tried to pretend that they are not going to increase asset, uh, so the, the inflation is going to be transitory. Then by early 2022, they were forced to admit that inflation was there. It was proving persistent. It was not going to go away easily. And so they, the Federal Reserve began a series of rate hikes. Now, the thing about these rate hikes is, yes, of course, they have been quite amazing. You know, uh, at various points, they have been going up not only just by the normal 25 basis points, but by 50 basis points and 75 basis points and uh, so on. But the fact of the matter is that the Federal Reserve is going to have to find some way of stopping raising interest rates because it is already entering that danger level. Let me give you a comparison. Back in 2005, 6, 7, the Federal Reserve was forced to start raising interest rates because the dollar was declining. There was downward pressure on the dollar. Oil prices were rising and so on. So the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates ever so gently, incrementally in a series of steps, 25 basis points at a time. It brought the interest rates up to something like 5.25%. That was enough to burst the 2000, the, the, the financial bubble, essentially. And the Federal Reserve, if it allowed that to happen, it would essentially bring down all these asset bubbles. You know, today we don't have a one or two asset bubbles, you know, credit bubble, housing bubble. We now have an everything bubble. And already many of the these bubbles are bursting in many, uh, many areas where money has been going, the bubbles are bursting. So now what you're going to see is the Federal Reserve is going to fight shy of raising interest rates very much. So the sledgehammer of high interest rates will not be used. The Federal Reserve has no other way of dealing with inflation. And so and, and, and the point is that 
for, from our point of view, what needs to be done in order to both combat inflation, but also to re remedy a whole host of other ills that ail the US economy is in fact to move away from financialization and create the sort of industrially focused, productively focused economy that Americans need. But the Federal Reserve is loath to do it. The elites are loath to do it because it involves a level of financial regulation and regulation of capital, which really puts brings it very close to what they fear, namely some sort of socialism. And this is my argument in this article I wrote, Vectors of Inflation, and also, of course, uh, uh, what, what I continue to argue today. So, Michael. Some last uh, no, what you're advocating is just what the central banks are unable to do. The fact is that uh, the debt uh, that has been run up can't be paid. There is no way that the Federal Reserve can cope with the fact that every recovery since World War II, every recovery since 1945 has started from a higher and higher and higher uh, debt level until now there's so much debt that uh, the uh, economy cannot compete and uh, cannot uh, avoid uh, homelessness and polarization unless the debt is wiped out. And that's what uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't do. Uh, the Federal Reserve can't change the financial system and say, well, for the last uh, 100 years, uh, actually for centuries, uh, commercial banks, when they make a loan, they make it against collateral. Banks do not make uh, loans in order to create new means of production. Uh, the stock market may do that uh, for uh, seed capital, but banks don't lend for ca uh, assets that are not already in place. They only lend against uh, uh, assets that are, <laughs> that are already there that they can foreclose on if the debt can't be paid. Well, we're now in a uh, mass uh, foreclosure period. And uh, the reason that all this $9 trillion was created uh, when Obama uh, bailed out uh, the, uh, the banks was that uh, the banks were insolvent. They had made so many bad loans that, as uh, the FDIC uh, had uh, pointed out, Citibank was bankrupt. All the big banks were broke. We spoke about that in the uh, the very first show. And uh, the the financial system is still basically insolvent. It's being kept alive. It's a zombie bank system, keeping zombie corporations uh, afloat by more and more debt that uh, ultimately is going to have to be written down. But banks don't do that. Uh, and the only solution uh, is beyond the Federal Reserve's policy. Uh, number one, it has to you have to write down write off the uh, bad debts. Uh, this is certainly uh, obvious for uh, many global South countries. But you also have to have a different financial system. You have to make credit a public utility as it is in China, uh, a public utility that actually is designed to create money and credit to create new means of production uh, without adding to the overhead costs of debt service. Uh, so uh, this requires deprivatization uh, as well as uh, uh, making, uh, making uh, credit a public utility. Economic rent is uh, should be uh, socialized and used as the basic uh, tax base. So you don't have rent being used to pay interest. You have rent 
to prevent uh, housing prices from being bid up on credit by uh, a financial sector whose job is to inflate asset prices to keep the Ponzi scheme going so that uh, uh, the economy doesn't... Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, so maybe in, in closing, actually, I just remember a couple of points that are really worth making before we close today. So we might go a tad over an hour. But the first thing is, you know, I earlier I mentioned the mystique of independent central banks. And of course, throughout this period, from the 1990s onwards, for more than two decades, we have been living uh, in an uh, in a uh, 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 we, we have been living through a sort of as I say mystification of the role of central banks and particularly of the Federal Reserve. You know there was a book written about Alan Greenspan whose work was portrayed as though you know he he was when he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve he was like a maestro who was conducting the complex orchestra of the U.S. economy and even the world economy merely with deft little movements of his monetary policy baton. In reality, of course, uh, if we ask ourselves what really kept inflation, so what really kept inflation low, because you see the central banks are lauded for having defeated the dragon of inflation over the last two or three decades. In reality, what has really kept inflation low over the last many decades is basically an attack on labor. It is basically an attack on third world countries, particularly their ability to develop, which we saw particularly strongly in the two th in the 1980s and 1990s. And um, as uh, you know, the economists uh, Utsar Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik have argued in their book, A Theory of Imperialism, a key to keeping the value of the money of first world countries is to keep the development of third world countries low because if third world countries started developing they would buy they would demand and buy more of the commodities that first world countries have been so used to getting for next to nothing whether it is oil or copper or lithium or whatever but now what one of the reasons we are looking at inflation is because despite the best efforts of the united states and western countries at least some third world countries led by china but also many others are beginning to develop they are making policy choices and they will say we also want our share of these uh, 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 commodities and products. And this is also going to create a very different scenario. And so, and finally, I just want to add just a little, give, give you a little preview for our next discussion. So Michael and I have agreed that our next discussion will be about de-dollarization. And I just want to say that these financial asset bubbles are deeply connected with the uh, reason why the dollar has appeared to remain the world's money. And we will also be discussing how, which is, you know, essentially uh, uh, these asset bubbles have been drawing money into the dollar-denominated financial system. But this is also rapidly changing. One of the things that Michael mentioned uh, 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 is the, the inflation of the um, uh, 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 the uh, balance sheet of the Federal Reserve uh, over the last, you know, doubling um, with the 2008 financial crisis and then again under QE and then again in the recent pandemic crisis and so on. So today it stands close to $9 trillion. What is all this money doing? It is essentially printing money. It has not 
contributed to rising prices because it has not rising consumer prices because it has not gone into the pockets of ordinary people. It has basically kept the asset inflation going. And this asset inflation, though, now it's now has an artificial support. The Federal Reserve is propping up asset markets. This is just one of the signs of the weaknesses which is going to doom the dollar. And that is going to be what we will be talking about next time. So I think we should, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, uh, I've, uh, in as preparation, I've discussed dollarization in my book, Super Imperialism, and uh, a scenario for de-dollarization in uh, The Destiny of Civilization is all, all about that. So uh, yes. both Radhika and I have written uh, uh, much about de-dollarization, and it would help uh, if you could uh, take a look at uh, what we've uh, uh, written in the past so that uh, uh, we can start from there and say uh, what's actually unfolding today. Exactly. So if you would also look at Michael and my paper, Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy, and also my book from 2013, Geopolitical Economy, which is very much focused on the dollar as well. So hopefully you'll have a chance to take a look at some of these things now or later. And next time we will um, return with a discussion of de-dollarization. Thank you for now and goodbye.